Bibles to 2 Chronicles 19. 2 Chronicles 19. And the title of the message this evening is Undeserved Mercy, Deserved Rebuke. Now we left off last week with Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and Ahab, the king of Israel, joining forces. Two men as different as night and day. Jehoshaphat, a godly man, and, and King Ahab, a wicked man. Well, they joined forces and they went to war against Ramoth-Gilead. King Ahab, as a result, was killed in that battle. So Jehoshaphat, in our, in our chapter tonight, is returning home to Jerusalem from that battle for Ramoth-Gilead. And any, as he comes home, he's met by a prophet named Jehu, who has a message for him from God. Jehu, uh, his father Hanani, was a seer. The word seer means a beholder in vision, a prophet. So let's begin now with chapter 19, verses 1 through 4. And it reads, Then Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned safely to his house in Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Nevertheless, good things are found in you in that you have removed the wooden images from the land, and you have prepared your heart to seek God. So Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the mountains of Ephraim, and brought them back to the Lord God of their fathers. So Jehoshaphat, in these verses, he receives mercy that he didn't deserve. First of all, God allowed him to return safely from the battle in Ramoth Gilead. After going there, again, without God's approval, he went into that battle without seeking God. He went out there really against the will of God because he didn't seek the will of God. He went on his own wisdom and his own doing. God could have left him there because of that. God could have kept him from coming back. But God protected him, even though Jehoshaphat didn't walk in his ways. We read in Psalm 121.8, The Lord shall preserve you from, notice, all evil, he shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now, we don't have to be afraid of living or dying. We don't have to be afraid of what happens today or tomorrow because, you see, our life is in the loving care of the Heavenly Father. All evil in Psalm 121.8 means anything that could harm us. But in his grace, God turns into, uh, turns into good the things that we think are evil. For example, remember how Joseph had to put up with the, 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 the hatred and the evil of his brothers? He, put up with, he, had, he, had to, he was separated from his father for 13 years. Besides the false accusations made against him by Potiphar's wife and the years that he spent in prison all because of his brother's sin, but when it was all said and done, remember what Joseph was able to say? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Paul said the same thing in Romans 8, 28. We know that all things, and when it says all things, it means all things. Work together for good for those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. The phrase going out and going in. In that Psalm 121, it refers to the things we do every day in life. God is with us in, in the things that we do every day in our life. 
And that's because the Heavenly Father is concerned about the things we have to do. He's concerned about our schedules. He's concerned even about those little, you know, we, we consider them petty things or trivial things that we think well, God, you know, God's not going to worry about that. God's not going to, no, he's not going to be concerned about those petty things in my life wrong. He is, he is concerned for those little things that we just take for granted. Now, you'll be under his protection wherever you go. Coming or going, just as the psalmist said, just like he protected Israel. Remember when they were in the wilderness and when they were on the move and even when they stopped. Secondly, uh, uh, Jehoshaphat got undeserved uh, mercy because he made it back to Jerusalem. After leaving his capital and 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 kingdom on a mission that he wasn't called to go on, he might have found both his capital and kingdom taken from him and not allowed to go back to them. But Jehovah, who was always better to us than we deserve, had watched over both his capital, that is Jerusalem, and his kingdom, of which he was over king, while Jehoshaphat was gone. Third, Jehoshaphat returns to his house in peace. This is the third you know, uh, example of undeserved mercy. His homecoming could have been very different. Isaiah 59, 8 says it like this, The way of peace they have not known. And there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths, and whoever takes that way shall not know peace. And, and Jehoshaphat took the crooked way. He teamed up with Ahab, you know, an unbeliever. And, and he, he went on a mission that God didn't call him to go on. And yet, when he got home, he had peace. Now, there's no advantage to sinning, so don't make that mistake. You don't gain anything by sin. The reality is you lose more because of sin. And you'll find that out real quick when you compare what you've lost with what you think you have gained. And the paths of sin are crooked paths. And you know what? They will only confuse you if you take them. And you will never get to the end of your journey if you go that way. And even though you think you might have peace and you say, oh, I'm going to have peace as you go on, you're only fooling yourself because you'll never know lasting peace. Jehoshaphat could have ended up dead like Ahab did, like Micaiah predicted in 2 Chronicles 18.28. Remember, Micaiah was, was prophesying to Ahab, and he says, if you return safely from battle, it will mean that the Lord has not spoken through me. And he didn't return safely from battle because God had him, you know, he was killed. So again, Jehoshaphat, he could have been brought back to Samaria in a box, killed by a Syrian warrior's arrow. Or killed by the Syrian troops. And he would have been if the Lord hadn't intervened on his behalf. But again, God is faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his covenant. Even when we, his people, aren't faithful in what we're called to do. So once again, we see the faithfulness of God. We read in Psalm 111.5, He will ever be mindful of his covenant. 2 Timothy 2.13, Paul said, If we are faithless, he, God, remains faithful, and he cannot deny himself. Our Lord is faithful. Always faithful. And he will stay by our side even after we've gone through so much that we seem to have no faith left. Sometimes we might feel faithless. But you know what? The Lord is always faithful to keep his promise to be with us, as Jesus said to the end of the age. But you see, if we refuse the Lord's help, it will cut off our communication with him. 
but he will never turn his back on us, even though we may turn our backs on him. So we see in those examples the undeserved mercy that he got. Now what we see is Joseph have, now Joseph, Jehoshaphat deserved rebuke because Jehoshaphat, I'm sorry, when Jehu went out to meet Jehoshaphat, he asked him, Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? That's a question that all believers have to answer. Do I love the wicked? Do I love partaking with the wicked and the wicked things that they do? It's something that this generation, which is becoming so accommodating and so tolerant and so understanding about everything, things that are clearly uh, explained in the scripture as sin, they're becoming accommodating to. Why? Because the world says it is and the world is pressuring them. And the church is being pressured and they're, they're, they're backing down from the word of God. They're not taking the stand of righteousness. And it's something the church needs to think about today. Now, listen clearly as I explain this to you because it could be confusing and sound contradictory. God never asks you to love someone who is an enemy of God. It's one thing to love a sinner. It's something else to love his sin. We need to learn how to tell the difference between the two. We are to hate the sinner's sin but if the sinner won't change and continues on living in his sin, then he becomes identified with his sin. He is that sin. So there's no way around it to hate and hating the sinner. There are people who are actually God's enemies. They're enemies of his word. They're hard-hearted enemies against his son, Jesus Christ. And they're hard-hearted enemies against Christianity. And we're seeing that more and more in the world today. As we see more animosity and hatred towards Christians and the word of God and their way of life. We are to love God's people. This is God's command. And we are to love the sinner in the sense that we should try everything that we can to bring them to Jesus Christ. But this doesn't, this doesn't mean that we are to compromise with sin to do that. There's another great lesson here that we need to get a hold of. God did not send Jehu, I'm sorry, yeah, Jehu to Jehoshaphat before he went up to join himself <clears throat> with Ahab and Jezebel. <clears throat> In other words, God didn't send Jehu to, to tell Jehoshaphat that what he was doing was wrong. He didn't send, uh, God didn't send Jehu to Jehoshaphat before the battle to warn him. Now Jehoshaphat, now you joining up with Ahab and you going to battle, you know, without consulting God. That's a no-no, Jehoshaphat. You shouldn't do that. You see, Jehoshaphat was a man of God. And if we are men and women of God, we know better. If we're in the word of God and have a relationship with God, we know better. God's word makes it clear. Now, Jehoshaphat made his mistakes. So God allowed him to go through this experience in that battle with Ahab because God was going to teach him a lesson from this. Now, we have a lot of people today who have made themselves out to be like God's spiritual policemen. They like to tell everybody else how they should be separated to God. And what they should do and what they shouldn't do. And with whom they should and shouldn't associate with. 
But God makes it very clear that we're not to judge others in questionable matters. Now, remember that people aren't going to stand before us in judgment. They're not going to stand before me in judgment. They're not going to stand before you in judgment. Paul said in Romans 14, 4, who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. What right do you and I have to judge another Christian's behavior? Are we so right on that, that, I can judge somebody, that we can judge somebody else? Are you God? Well, if we judge like this, apparently we think we are. Does that person answer to you? Paul says he's not accountable to you. He's accountable to God, and he's going to stand before his own master one day. Now, you might not approve of somebody's behavior in some area, but again, they don't have to answer to you. You're not their master. They're responsible to Jesus Christ. He's their master, and they will answer to him for what they do. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 1 through 5. He said, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye. And look, a plank is in your eye. You hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So the first rule of judgment is that we start with ourselves. Jesus, now here's the thing. Jesus didn't forbid us to judge others because you see, careful discernment is necessary in the Christian life. Paul said in Romans 15, 14, now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren. Now he was talking to the Roman Christians. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness filled with all knowledge, notice, able also to admonish one another. To admonish carries the ideas of encouraging and warning and advising. You see, it's a thorough term. The word admonish, it's a thorough word, a complete word for counseling. And in this context that Paul is using in Romans, it refers to coming alongside other Christians for spiritual and moral counseling. Paul is not referring to a special gift of counseling, though some have that. But he's talking about the duty and the responsibility that every Christian has for encouraging and strengthening other believers. And all faithful Christians are divinely equipped to admonish one another as it's needed and as the occasions come up among them. Now, the Romans had set an example for others in this. When Paul said this about, about you're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, you're also able to admonish one another, he was commending them because the Roman Christians were able to instruct each other for about 30 years before an apostle ever went there. That tells you that the Word of God, we, if we know the Word of God, we are capable of knowing what we need to do. He said you're filled with all knowledge. You're full of goodness. Why? They knew the scriptures. They knew the Lord. They were able to admonish with one another. They were able to deal with the situations that arose among them. That's why Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture from Genesis to Revelation is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, that is for knowing what's right, for reproof, for correcting what's right, and for... Uh, for um, 
uh, rebuking what's right, for correction, for staying right, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, notice, may be complete, thoroughly equipped. Notice that. God has thoroughly equipped us with the word of God and his spirit why? for every good work. You see, Christian love is not blind. It doesn't turn a blind eye to ungodly living. Paul said in Philippians 1, 9 and 10, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge, notice, in knowledge and all discernment, that is, knowing what's good and what's not, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere, notice, and without offense till the day of Christ. Philippians 1, 9 through 10. This is a prayer that Paul gave for maturity. And Paul starts it with love. Because you see, if our Christian, <clears throat> if our Christian love is what it should be, then every, everything else should follow. Paul prays that they might experience abounding love and discerning love. The heart and the mind work together so that we have discerning love and we have a loving discernment. And Paul wants his friends to grow in discernment. Being able to tell the difference in the things that differ. Being able to know the difference is a sign of maturity. And if a person believes everything they hear, and if they accept everyone who says they're spiritual, they'll experience confusion and great spiritual loss. But before we judge others, we have to judge ourselves. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 1 through 5. What Jesus said is against the kind of hypocritical, judgmental attitude that tears others down in order to build oneself up. That's what he meant by that kind of judging. But we are fruit inspectors, if you will. To the, we, and we, we, you know, we, we are able to and, and have that responsibility to share with a brother or a sister, you know what? What you're doing isn't right. But it's not the judgmental spirit that I'm going to say that so that it makes me look good. It's not to tear them down and to lift me up. It's to exhort and admonish the brother to help them get on track. And if they're walking with God and they're in the right spiritual mind, you know what? It'll be accepted. But many times they get, you know, angry. and well, Who are you to judge me? I'm not judging you. In the sense of it's a hypocritical and judgmental judgment that, you know, makes me look good. Jesus is not against common sense thinking, but he's telling us in that verse in chapter seven to be discerning rather than negative and condemning. That's the difference. And to trust God to be the final judge. And we make a big mistake when we criticize other people because they're not as separated to God as we think they should be. God is able to make them stand. And if he has, if that person has a personal faith in Jesus Christ, God will hold them up. It could be said like this. I will have to give an account someday for my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's my master, you're not. And in the same way, I'm not your master. The Lord Jesus Christ is your master. You'll give an account to him. And knowing that someday I will give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ, boy, that keeps me plenty busy. I have, I got a lot of work just in myself without worrying about how somebody else is living. I don't have time to sit around and look at people and say, oh, look at how bad they're living and, and, and take a, take a, a account. No, I, I, my life is no better. 
I need to keep an account of my life. I have to judge myself. And I, like, like, like the psalmist said, Lord, search my heart. Oh, we're so busy searching other people's heart and searching their behavior and how they're doing and what they should be doing. Search my heart, Lord. Show me. Show me what's wrong in my life. Show me the sins in my life so that I can work on those things, so that I can do those things that are pleasing to you and I can get rid of those things in my life that are displeasing to you and disqualify me from service. Jesus said, I do always those things that please the Father. And we should have that same desire. That should be our goal as well. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 10 and 11, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one, notice, may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether they're good or bad. It's not our business, it's God's business. And God will rebuke me if I do the wrong thing. And that's what he did here to Jehoshaphat. He taught Jehoshaphat through this experience, and Jehoshaphat learned his lesson. Jehoshaphat got a severe scolding by Jehu for a couple of reasons. First of all, because he helped the ungodly. He helped uh, King Ahab, who was a wicked man, an ungodly man. And for helping the wicked accomplish their ungodly schemes, uh, he got scolded. Now, as long as something is not sinful, in, in scriptural time as well, as long as something wasn't sinful, it was never a crime against Jehovah God in Old Testament times. If we, it, 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 what I'm saying is that in the biblical times, as well as say, if someone was helping a person that wasn't, you know, a, a, a believer, as long as what they were helping him do wasn't something that was ungodly, it was okay. It wasn't a crime against Jehovah God. Not only that, it, it, it's not forbidden, but it's commanded in the gospel to love your neighbor, to help your neighbor. Again, as long as you're not helping them to do something that is ungodly or unbiblical. James 2.8 says to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do, you do well. But at that time, that is in the time of Jehoshaphat, as now, if you support, if you help in any way the ungodly in their wicked ideas and their wicked plans and their schemes and you join them in their wicked ways and you help them carry out their wicked prog uh, projects, that is forbidden to everyone who says they are followers of Christ. Psalm 1-1 says, Blessed is the man, notice, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the, of the, of the scornful. Psalm 141.4, the psalmist says, Do not incline my heart to any evil thing to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity. The second thing that Jehoshaphat learned, that, uh, that uh, uh, loving those that hate God. Loving those that hate God. This is also allowed in the sense where God himself and Christ loved and still loved sinners. Having compassion on their misery, having compassion for their weakness, grieving over their sin and seeking their recovery and their salvation. But in the sense of giving them affection and confidence and sympathy and support to those who are secretly public enemies of God. And they despise salvation and, and you know, they despise the worship of God and those who break his commandments and oppress his people. And they're a, they're they're. They're against the work of God. 
to love them is a stretching of, of the love that we're commanded to give. Uh, it wasn't allowed then, neither is it allowed now. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love, notice, love does not rejoice in iniquity. Love can't rejoice in sin. To be more exact, it was considered the better good to hate Jehovah's enemies among the Hebrew Christians. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 139, 21 through 22. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do, not, do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. God's enemies were David's enemies. Now, what David was saying here is, uh, is that he didn't want to have anything to do with the evil that evil men think up. You know, again, we say hate the sin, but love the sinner. And it's nice advice. But it's also hard to do because, you see, loving the sinner, if we're really not careful, will lead to first a love of the sinner's sinful ways and then taking part in them. David was not David was not absolutely sure that he could actually love one and hate the other. So David decided to totally separate himself from all evil people, and that's the best thing to do. If I cannot be sure that I can separate myself from evil people and I might get caught up in their sin, you know what? I need to stay away completely. And that's what David did here. Let me read to you some of his, his um, thoughts in, in Psalm 101. Psalm 101, 4 and 5 says this. David said, a perverse heart shall depart from me. Notice, I will not know wickedness. Whoever secretly slanders his brother... I, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. David said in Psalm 101, 7 through 8, He who works deceit shall not dwell with me in my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. He said, Early I will destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. David said in these words, I will have nothing to do with those who are wicked. Now, this doesn't mean that David never had anything to do with sinful people. It just means that he didn't want to be with those who had obvious signs of being evil or were doing evil things. Because David was so blown away, he was so overwhelmed by the greatness of his God, he didn't want anything to endanger his relationship with him. We are called to hate the works and the ways of the Lord's enemies. Paul said in Philippians 3, 17 through 18, Brethren, join in my following, he said, join in following my example. Notice, he said, follow my example, brethren. He says, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. He said, mark those. Mark those who so walk as you have us for a path. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. He said, mark those people. Mark those people who don't walk in the way of Christ and they are enemies of the cross. He also learned a lesson that, uh, of the scary sentence that he had. Jehu told him in verse 2, notice, the Lord is angry with you. Jehoshaphat, the Lord is angry with you because you helped the wicked. You helped those who hate the Lord. But this was to be expected because Jehovah is a jealous God. 
And no, in no way could God allow such spiritual deterioration to go unnoticed without somehow showing that he was unhappy about it. Not only that, Jehovah, by his covenant with David, had promised to chastise any failure by any of David's descendants. And in the same way, even though God forgives the believer's sin so that they won't end up in hell, he does not excuse them from suffering the consequences of their sin. And understand, you know, God may forgive our sin, but that, he, that doesn't mean he, that the consequences will be removed. Many times they're cause and effect. If I do something, there's going to be a consequence for it. And God promises to remove the sin, but he doesn't promise to remove the, con the consequences. So again, though he forgives the sin, he won't, so they won't end up in hell, he doesn't excuse them from suffering the consequences of their sin. But instead, he usually causes them, when they go astray, to feel the inward convictions of their sin and on their conscience for their sin. And he allows their, their, the outward to suffer in their bodies or their belongings to let them know that he's angry with their sin. And Hebrews 12, 11 tells us, no, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, notice, afterward, and that's the key, after I've gone through the, through the painful suffering, after I've gone through the chastisement, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And that's the purpose for God allowing us to go through chastisement. That we will experience the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now, while Josephat was at Ramoth Gilead, he experienced a sample of God's wrath in 2 Chronicles 18.31. Remember when the Syrians attacked him? They all went after him, thinking he was the king, and then he cried out to the Lord, and then the king, the, then the, the, the king intervened and, and, and pulled them back, and he, they went after King Ahab. But yet more evidence of the Lord's anger is still going to follow. We're going to see in chapter 20 an invasion by the Moabites. Dave, uh, Jehoshaphat also received a gracious break. Jehu condemned Jehoshaphat's sin, but he didn't forget to mention his qualities. He said, that, hey, there's still some good things about you. Now, to praise somebody for their good qualities isn't as easy as blaming somebody for their bad ones, and that's what we seem to do a lot. We're quick to point out people's bad qualities, but pretty slow in, in mentioning the good ones. Because it seems like, you know, we see people's faults more quickly than their good qualities. But in ourselves, oh, it's the total opposite. We're quick to point out our good qualities more than our bad ones. But thank God, he searches our hearts. And he points out his people's shortcomings. And he doesn't overlook what they do well also. Even if Jehoshaphat's behavior in making this partnership with Ahab was condemned by God, what he did in removing the groves in verse 3, notice it says, from his land and preparing his heart to seek the Lord, that wasn't forgotten by God. And he mentions it. And it's the same for us. It's the same for Christians. Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. Even though God is required to correct them for doing wrong. While Jesus, remember, in Revelation was sending his messages to the churches in Asia, with one exception, he mentions all of their good works. He says, though I have this thing, he says, I've seen this, I've seen you're good in this, you're sticking to the word, and you've got good, you got good things going on, but I have this one thing against you. So he mentioned the positive as well as the negative. 
Here's the lessons from verses 1 through 4. Thank God for his mercy. Submit to his rebuke. Repent for sin. Be, re, be watchful in duty. And don't judge other people. Let's read now verses 4 through 11 as we close. I'm going to read verses 4 uh, through 11 from the New Living Translation just again for ease of, of understanding. It says, Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem, but he went out among the people, traveling from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim, encouraging the people to return to the Lord, the God of their ancestors. He appointed judges throughout the nation in all the fortified towns, and he said to them, always think carefully before pronouncing judgment. Remember that you do not judge, the, to, you do not judge uh, to please people, but to please the Lord. He will be with you when you render the verdict in each case. For the Lord and judge, uh, fear the Lord and judge with integrity because the Lord our God does not tolerate perverted justice, partiality, or the taking of bribes. In Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites and priests and clan leaders in Israel to serve as judges for cases involving the Lord's regulations and for civil disputes. These were his instructions to them. You must always act in the fear of the Lord with faithfulness and an undivided heart. Whenever a case comes to you from fellow citizens in a distant town, whether a murder case or some other violation of God's laws, commands, decrees, or regulations, you must warn them not to sin against the Lord so that he will not be angry with you and them. Do this and you will not be guilty. Amariah the high priest will have final say in all cases involving the Lord. Zebediah, son of Ishmael, a leader from the tribe of Judah, will have final say in all civil cases. The Levites will assist you in making sure that justice is served. Take courage as you fulfill your duties, and may the Lord be with those who do what is right. So Jehoshaphat made more improvements in worship and the law. And Jehoshaphat appointed in these verses dependable judges to keep and to administer the work of God for all those from Beersheba to Ephraim who, call, who were called back to God. Verse 6, he said, notice, you do not judge for man, but for the Lord. And this is a continuous reminder because he, God, is the creator of all justice. He's the creator of the standards that everything is to be judged by. Everyone should be treated the same, he said in verse 7. No partiality, no taking of bribes. The Levites were also given duties in applying the law of God, which they were to administer faithfully and with a loyal heart, verse 9 says. They were to hear the hard cases from the distant cities. Amariah was to be chief over the courts and religious matters, and Zebediah over the king's matters, in verse 11. So there was a pretty clear division between, the, between church and state, but they both govern, the church and the state both govern under the fear of God, which does not happen today. Righteousness often takes boldness. It takes courage to stand upon the truth of the word of God and to take a bold stand. But in every relationship in life, men need to always remember, but verse 11 says that the Lord will be with the good. The Lord will be with the good. So Jehoshaphat's uh, advice is helpful to leaders. Number one, leaders should understand that you are judging for God. Secondly, leaders are to be impartial and honest, treating every person fairly. Verse 7, 
Third, leaders are to be faithful, verse 9. Fourth, leaders, are, leaders, whatever you do, do it only out of the fear of God, not men, verse 9 says. One man said this, I will make no decisions out of fear, take no counsel out of a desire to please, accept no service for financial consideration, perform no religious act out of mere custom, nor will I allow myself to be influenced by the love of publicity or the desire for reputation. That's basically what Joseph Hatt was saying here in these leaders. And the fifth thing, leaders uh, are to understand God holds us accountable for the authority that we exercise. We exercise God's authority. And we are all under God, no matter who we are. Just like Jehoshaphat, we deserve rebuke. But instead, God gives us undeserved mercy. Father, we thank you for that unmerited favor, God, that undeserved grace and mercy that you give us, Lord. Father, help us to live righteously, Lord. Help us to live biblically, God. Help us to live not according to our own interpretation of what your word says, Lord. But God, to live by the truth that it gives us, God. And Lord, help us to know that you, Lord, are the creator. We are the created. And that, Lord, you're in heaven and we're on earth. And that, Father, you're our God and we're your children. May we obey our Heavenly Father. May we revere our Heavenly Father. And if you're here tonight and, and, and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we pray God's Spirit has spoken to your heart. And that God has made it clear who He is and who you are. We deserve rebuke, we deserve judgment. But he gives us undeserved grace and mercy. And he gave it in the greatest example through his son, Jesus Christ, upon the cross. Who died for our sins. That we might receive his grace and mercy. That he paid for our sins. Because he knew we couldn't. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship right now, and this time is for you. If you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisle towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.